Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and I have two guests, well, three technically, because there's a canine guest here who does not live with me. Um, But I have Jessica Vogelsang and Danielle Lambert and Archer Lambert uh, here with us on the podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having us. Archer, see you again. (laughs) Supremely excited to be here. Rustin Griff face, you can't help it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're not watching, <laughs> yeah, you just need to find Danielle on social media and you'll meet Archer. But she has a Lorax. It's I kind know. of amazing. Yeah, he is yes. a Dr. Seuss character. Literally anything but a dog, and you guys are professionals, so you can weigh in on that. It's just it's not a dog. <laughs> yeah, no. I love him so much. I still have a picture of Archer on my phone with a bow tie on. <laughs> somewhere the in there. People that have content of Archer and like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know you're with vet people when. Exactly. It's true. Um, Well, thank you both so much. Um, Jessica has graced us on the podcast before because she uh, is one of my esteemed coworkers and, in fact, my boss at AHA. I'm not making this a condition of your employment. (laughs) I just want everybody to know that. (laughs) It is super exciting to have you back, Jessica. And um, would you give us, like, your, your volume two bio for people who may have missed you the first time? Sure. Chief Medical Officer here at AHA. I've been with the organization for two years. Before that, I'm working in branding, telehealth, and clinical practice in the San Diego area. So that's a super short version, but great to be back. And if Jessica disappears, it's because there's a giant truck tearing up her backyard. And so she may have to disappear, but hopefully that won't happen. So we have been waiting. Like We actually were trying to get this work done um, since before covid they finally said last night, like, hey, we can come in and tear up your yard. I've been waiting two years. So, of course, you say yes. But then I looked at my calendar and realized, like, come on. Like, th- I've recorded one podcast in the last six yeah. months, and it's the same this day. This is the day. Yeah. yeah. That would make sense. I don't normally, I don't normally live work. in a place that sounds like yeah, a high-density <laughs> construction, construction zone. zone but Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for being here. And hopefully uh, they will stay quiet because they know it's really important in life. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> yes. Um, Danielle, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? I know a lot of people are probably familiar with you and you have some, uh, just a little bit of, of experience in this space. So <laughs> whatever you think is important for people to yeah. know about you, please share. Sure. So I am the CEO at the Snout Group, which is the agency that is behind snoutschool.com. We really work to teach people to create um, really unique brands um, and also brands that can sustain um, tough tests and the test of time as well. Um, Really brands that are going to be something, you know, special and, you know, bring new change to the industry. So we do that through different online courses or um, high-end brand strategy and design at the Snout Group. So yeah, I just, I, I love talking about marketing and branding, but I also really love, um, you know, talking about things in veterinary medicine that people don't want to talk about. It's just my addiction. <laughs> you are good at telling it like it is. Like exactly. the things that, that everybody's thinking and no one wants to say out loud, like you say out loud. 
And yeah. I appreciate that. I have no filter. I'm working on it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but are you, though? Like, do you really need a filter? I mean, I have <laughs> learned that's to when behave. you text me. <laughs> exactly. I, that's my filter, actually. Quite literally, my anger translator, if you remember from Key and Peele, like the Obama anger translator skit. I always say that Jessica Vogelsang is my anger translator. And so, yeah, I could definitely say she has taught me how to uh, somewhat behave over the years. But, you know, <laughs> compliance. Just- <laughs> Jessica plays that role in other places too. Yeah. She's very good at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, and so that's one of the things that you know we actually were going to talk about today because branding, marketing, and branding, like for sure, that's your jam, and um, you produce so much great content about that. And uh, I would love to talk to you about that too, but that's not what we're going to talk about today, um, at least not in large part. So, mm-hmm. but before we get into what we are going to talk about. Um, we have a a hashtag now that's on. So if you've been to a conference and you picked up one of our stickers or you've seen our mascots online, um, you'll see that they always come with a little hashtag that says, what guides you? And I was just wondering, um, if I could ask the two of you in life or in vet med, what guides you? That's a good question. That's a question that I would ask on like a a brand strategy call. So I love that. Excellent. Excellent. I really think I'll actually use one of my core values as a brand, both for myself and for Snout School. One of our values is to make the path easier for those behind us. So whatever I'm trying to do each day, I am trying to think of how I can make things better for those who are, you know, behind me or at a different place than me in their career. I love that. For me, it's it's so simple. It's it's just the golden rule, do the right thing. That has guided me from day one. Uh, being out in practice up until this moment. And as you all know, doing the right thing is um, oftentimes not the fun thing, not the easy thing, um, and and not the thing that's going to make you friends. But I I have no regrets, (laughs) really. from, from You will never regret doing the right thing. It is there's not a whole lot of um, moral quandary involved when I go to bed at night. <laughs> It'll make you the right friends too, I would argue. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is very true. You would be, it's shocking to me. Well, not always shocking. Um, but when you live that life, you do, you find people will gravitate towards you and people will find they want nothing to do with you. Um, <laughs> and, and you may not always predict. I could sometimes it surprises you who doesn't want anything to do with that. That's the power of it. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, and and definitely something that in vet med, I feel like if you asked anybody in vet med, they'd be like, yeah, I want to do what's right for my patients. I want to do what's right for my clients. I want to give them the best care. And yet, as an industry, as a population, sometimes I do feel like, I feel like I could say this in this room, (laughs) um, that we don't always uh, want to commit to doing that right thing if we know it's going to make people unhappy, um, even if it's people we don't care that much about, because we are pleasers and fixers. And we're people who have been told our whole lives that we're good at things. And we, you know, and we're caring and empathetic. And it's, it feels sometimes like you're breaking with that, that people pleaser identity to do the right thing, if it's not also the popular thing. Um, which does kind of lead into what we're talking about today. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, it does. And, you know, you may believe very strongly about doing the right thing and somebody else may feel just as passionately, but have a different conclusion. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it sounds very easy, but it's not right. I, right. I believe that this is the right thing. And somebody else is like, well, I disagree strongly. 
then, yeah. And it's not always black and white, you know, who's who, who's deluding themselves, because sometimes there could be more than one right thing, depending on the situation. But um, this is a field also that is overwhelmingly female. Like we or at least I, I'm saying this, this is going to be an episode where we use the words female and women a lot and and feminism. And I just want to just say at the outset, like when we say female in this episode, we say women, we're talking about people who identify as female, people who identify as women um, and put themselves in that group. And so I don't mean to exclude anybody who um, who is trans or non-gender conforming. And we have, you know, there's there's so much data about women versus men, and there's not a ton of data about people who don't conform to one of those two very clear-cut genders. Um, so that is another discussion for another day, probably. But um, in the meantime, I want to make sure that we are including everybody who identifies as female in today's discussion. So just put that out there. Um, but in a field that is so female-dominated, I mean, it's like, what, 80% female or vet school graduates now or something like that, um, why do we still see, for instance, a gender wage gap? Why do we still have to talk about feminism in a field where women should hold all the power? Such a well, I mean, question. just because <laughs> yeah, you... just answer that now. Then we'll be yeah, done. Well, of course, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I'll just um, go first. Let's go get a PhD and then come back. We'll be right back in four years. Um, I, I mean, I think the short, short version is just because you represent the majority by numbers doesn't mean you represent the decision-making. It doesn't mean you're set up to succeed in the structures that are in place. And so I I think that there's so much conversation to be had around sort of the history of veterinary medicine and and what we define, you know, as success. I I know for me, um, when I graduated, so we, we were renowned, our class, for being like the slacker class. And the reason that we were called the slacker class is because we had five women who had children. Uh, oh. and, and I would argue that there's probably the hardest working class that ever existed because they were running around in the large animal barn, you know, with the newborns dropped to their chest trying to get in. But somehow that was considered like a bad thing because they weren't committed to 100% all the time being in, in the clinics, like how, how dare they make these other choices? And so it, it's really just about redefining that, that narrative. And that is where I, I like, that's the short answer. I think why we haven't made the progress that we want to, because we are, we are not correctly identifying the goals that we want. I think that's like a really good way of looking at it. Right. And I think like the, the hurdles that you just brought up, they got Archer was like very supportive of that comment. Very I, I appreciate yes, him. Yes, he's definitely a good ally. Um, but I think it is so systemic, right? Like I think of vet school being a great example, right? I'm the only, you know, I'm, I'm not a veterinarian, so I'm the non-vet here, but from an outside perspective, what I see of veterinary school is not inherently, um, conducive to also maybe being a mom. <laughs> um, like I shared a post the other day about, uh, a group of students that shared that they like 
lost 15 pounds during their, you know, uh, externship rotations and stuff like that because they were so busy. So I think veterinary medicine just really systemically has a lot of things going on in it that don't allow women to maybe get the same opportunities and rise to the same positions and be at like that C-suite level, um, that a lot of men are able to get to. Um, and it can even be just like practice ownership, I think is a huge divide in terms of, of wage gap. Um, we have disproportionately more men in practice ownership still. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much we could unpack on this one, honestly. Yeah, it, there's a ton. I mean, this is a very complex question. and But I think it's something that would maybe surprise some people, particularly men, <laughs> I think, um, if you said, you know, I belong to a field where 80% of my graduating class was female, and um, I still don't feel like women and men are treated equally in in this field. And I feel like there are some people who would say, well, that can't possibly be true, you know, because women run the show. There's so many of us. But if you look back at like, you know, when you get JAVMA in the mail, and it's got the picture of all the board of directors on the front of it, like once a year, and even just up to a few years ago, I feel like it was a lot of men. And there have just been historically a lot of men in leadership in vet med, even when the graduates um, and so many technicians and support team members um, were becoming more and more female dominated. Um, and so that definitely plays a role in our attitudes towards things like maternity leave and having kids in vet school and, you know, whether you want to go part time or have flex hours, which are so important for so many moms. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a few different things there, right? So obviously, like not all not all women are, are moms and like, so, so there's other things in play. So I, you know, I kind of want to clarify that there's sub issues upon sub issues yeah. here and some impact women disproportionately, some impact moms or caregivers. So there's a lot there. And I, and I also just want to kind of set the stage um, when we have this discussion as well, that when we talk about, you know, men might not see this, we're not, we're not saying that there's um, like intentional desire, right? right? Like that this is right. not like, how dare you not see these things? I, I think just like they're blind spots and it's easy not to see the blind spots because they're your, your blind spots or it just may not occur to you. So I just, I, I just want to preclude um, yeah. anyone who might be listening, thinking like, how dare you do better? And because we know that there are a lot of people that really want to, and you just like the very first thing you have to do in order to do better is to just kind of listen and see what what the situation is and, and hear people's perspectives. And I hope that, you know, this is the the first conversation in many where we start talking about these things. Um at at Connexity last year I was I was talking with uh, Karen Chinoy, who's the chief veterinary officer for for Hills US and and we were chatting and I realized that this was the first year that um that aha CMO, the Hills CVO, um, as well as the president of the AVMA, like they were all working moms. And that was the first time that was ever the case. Like we've had a uh, female presidents of AVMA, but none working moms. And it's like, what? It's 2023. It's 2022 at the time. Um, and that was yet the first time that that had ever happened. And I'm quite sure this was not the first time there was a bunch of working dads, you know? So yeah. um, there's, it was just such a in your face moment to realize wow, are we just now hitting that milestone? Like, right. Great, just but also, that part. 
Yeah, but it took oh so my long. gosh, so much work to do still, right? Like, think yeah. of how long it will be before those three women are women of color. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, <laughs> it really yes. is. It's There's so much to unpack here, and there's such a lack of true diversity, I think, mm-hmm. in our space. And I, I think to Jessica's point about, you know, like, this isn't just to say, like, um, you know, like shame on men kind of like conversation. It's just saying like, it's important to recognize these realities. And like I was saying, like, think about how you can make the path easier for others behind you, because not everybody has the same experience and the same circumstances as you. So thinking about how you can make, you know, the workplace more accommodating to working moms, if that's the case or what have you, I think that those things are so important for us to unpack in order to address things like the, um, the wage gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have a an article coming out in March. We're recording this right at the end of February, and um, I think the the article will be out, you know, in a few days. So you'll see it. But it's in Trends Magazine, and it, it actually talks about the gender um, wage gap in vet med um, specifically because um, there's some good research going on there, and and there is still a gender wage gap in vet med for anybody that's wondering, spoiler alert, there is one. (laughs) I don't know if you remember this, Katie, um, Danielle, you probably do. This was on a a different website that we're working on together, but, um, somebody had submitted an opinion piece about, um, the, the pay gap. And they basically said it's because women don't negotiate. Mm. And, and I read it and I didn't agree, but I thought, well, you know, let's, um, let's put it out there and, and see what happens. And, uh, the, the response was, I, I felt bad. Um, <laughs> the internet does not let you down. <laughs> maybe I should have warned this author. Like, you know, that, that other people might This is not going this, to go well. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that that's such an important thing to unpack though, because, it's one thing to say that women don't negotiate, but I think it's also another thing to realize how differently that can be received when Mm -hmm. women do try to negotiate, right? Like I can think of times, um, and this is why I will say, actually, I think one of the most important things when it comes to closing the wage gap is to talk with people about what you're making, to be transparent. Um, I think I come from more of a consultant background and experience at this point in my career, right? I've been pretty much working on my own for almost 10 years, which is crazy, um, because I'm like 12 years old. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's amazing you've done all this by age 22 yes yes. (laughs) but I um but you know I I come from that perspective of like it's really ambiguous when you are coming in as a consultant or maybe if you are going to work like as a relief vet or something anything where you're setting your own rates and you don't even know what everybody else's rates are I have just personally seen you know situations like in in the speaker world is a great example because it's very vague like what is everybody getting paid Right. And I've seen situations where, you know, people are real happy to pay, you know, a charismatic white man to fly on in and and speak. But when a highly educated woman wants to speak at that same conference then and be paid to do so, like she's criticized for asking for money or to just be compensated for like her flight to get there. So I think we do have a lot of work to do in terms of this is exactly perfect example of like what, you know, if men are listening and they're like, what can I do? Think about times that maybe you're like, oh yeah, sure. I'll pay my buddy, whatever he wants. But like, oh, she's going to ask for money. Like you have to kind of think about times that you've had that own like unconscious bias in you, um, to try to kind of help close that gap for sure. So I really think like, 
I, I think transparency is so critical here, right? I love seeing jobs that are listing what they pay, right? In California, I think that's law now, right? In California. Colorado too. Colorado, yeah. yep. That's awesome. Um, but I think really sharing what you are going to pay because otherwise, you know, like somebody's walking in blind, they don't even know how to negotiate or to get a fair wage and they shouldn't have to negotiate with you to get a living wage out of you. You should be presenting a living wage up front. Yeah. Uh, there's been some really fantastic work. I'm going to give a shout out to Ovaldi, the Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative, and Dr. Cimarello in particular, mm-hmm. who's who's done some great work in this area. Um, you know, that's a big issue. And, and I think just sort of understanding and again, acknowledging that the rules are different for different people. Like you, you tend to give advice and, and judge outcomes based on the rules that you play by. And it's not true. <laughs> the world treats and judges everybody differently on, on sort of the sliding scale. And, you know, sort of conversely, um, I know with, with men, you know, they, they have um, talking to my husband about like fatherhood, you know, and, and, and how he feels like he's, he's judged so very differently. Like, you know, I'm just, I, I, I don't need, you know, your help uh, taking the kids to school. <laughs> you know, This is just, so it, so it goes both ways. Right. And, and I think sort of framing that um, in context, people can understand it is very difficult to make sort of a set list of, well, these are the rules and this is what you need to do in order to succeed. Because I have taken the advice of people in a different position playing by a different playbook and had it blow up at my face and Same. nobody could figure out why. Um, yep. Yeah. I think that's oh. a really, really important point to underscore, right? Like I, if I could just walk into every room with like the blind confidence of like a boomer man, trust me, I would <laughs> like, and I have some amazing mentors that are boomer men, but like the world just receives them differently. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I, I, there is a different set of rules that I think it's extremely important to acknowledge that. It's also hard now too. Like I, I know as the child of a boomer man who is also an employment lawyer and <laughs> has gone over my contracts, you know, in the past, like there have been times where he's been like, you can't sign this. And then he returns me the contract and it's like red pen everywhere, you know? <laughs> and I mean, he changed the entire thing. And I'm like, I can't go, go back, back to my boss with this, you know? Like, that, I'd be like, that's not how things are done in vet med, dad. And he'd be like, this is how things are done in the real world, Katie. And I'd be like, yes, like I said. <laughs> because, because vet med for so long has felt like you're negotiating with, like, James Harriet. Right. You know, like you go in and it's a it's a small practice and everybody's like, this is my work family, you know, and like we won't get off on that tangent now. But it's- James Harriet, I have to drop in my PSA. I always drop in that James Harriet wrote works of fiction. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. And look who his boss was. Like, can you imagine trying to negotiate with Siegfried, you know, um, but I I feel like that's how it's felt is in small practices that have been privately owned. It's very difficult to negotiate because you feel like you're negotiating with somebody who could be your relative or your friend or was your call, you know, your, your equal as far as like they were an associate vet five minutes ago. And it just feels like you're trying to milk them for money. That's, you know, my apologetic, like woman, well-trained woman self feels that way. That's such an interesting point because I would be curious to ask like a, a, group from different demographics and see, because so often I feel like the advice is be dispassionate 
Um, and when you try to be dispassionate, you still, like you said, get that, well, this makes me feel like you're trying to take advantage or don't you feel badly asking for these things? And there's that emotional element to negotiation when even you're not, even when you're not trying to bring it in sometimes gets presented to you. And it's, it's always very jarring, at least to me, like, this is not personal, (laughs) you know, but for, for some people it is. And you just, you have no idea what, what the person on the other side is, is going to throw at you. Um, I I think we've all had that experience where you walk in and you're kind of dubious and you say, well, I'm just going to ask for what I need because what else can you do? And when you're so used to being sort of rejected or having someone make you feel bad for asking for what you want or just flat out refusing to negotiate with you at all, it's very bizarre when you go to somebody else with the exact same pitch you've always had and they say, okay, like when somebody actually accepts you for who and what you're worth, then you realize like it, it's not about me. It's never been about Oh my gosh, me. that's such a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Truly, Is that, truly. that parable about the um the guy who's like a, a famous concert violinist or something playing in the subway and he got like ten cents. Yeah. You know, if everybody was ignoring him and then he played that night in Carnegie Hall for hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars. It, it's not you. You, you show up the same way everywhere. It's, it's about how the universe is uh, reacting to you. And so how do you change that? Um, you can't do that by yourself. You could try, but when you're trying to change a system and, and how we treat large swaths of people, this is everybody banding together and one, acknowledging the system that's in place and two, saying, well, what changes do we want to make um, and in what order? Because you certainly can't do it overnight. do better yourself and then grow from there. Yeah, I think that's like the major component. Again, what we're asking people to do here really is to be able to like look at themselves, right? And so I really think of, you know, like I hire people to work for me different, like um, especially with like our design work, right? Like we'll hire illustrators, for example, right? And I really notice most of them are women and they'll be like, oh, sorry, could you maybe uh, pay me uh, for this? Like they're very like, apologetic that I'm even going to pay them for their work. And so I've really started to kind of take the lead and say like, Hey, I want to pay you up front. Um, I want, I this is my budget. You know what I mean? Like I'm very like open and transparent with them and people are so grateful. And I think that that's kind of a thing that you, you need to put out there in the world. Cause that way that person knows that you're coming to this open to paying them and supporting them. And that's major. Uh, when, I mean, that's great that you do that. And actually, Jessica, you did that when we were talking about this job. Like, you were like, this is how much money I have to pay you. And and I was like, oh, okay. You know, and it, it was not that I didn't feel like I could negotiate with you. It was that I didn't feel like I had to um, because I felt like you were being upfront with me, you know, sort of woman to woman, like you knew that this is going to be a hard thing. And it just let's just make that conversation easier. It's like how remember Saturn used to like, weren't they the ones that were like, you don't have to bargain like the sticker price is the price. Of course, look what happened. Oh, then. that was always it's just it, it makes you feel it, it just I don't know. Like it, it, the, the work is worth what it's worth. And, and to go in and, mm-hmm. and try and play hardball and, and go like, let me see if I can come in 30, 40 grand under where I want to be and, and see how much I can twist out of someone. I don't want to start my working relationship like that. Yeah. And like, I've, I've never seen a group more apologetic at having to make money 
than veterinary professionals. Like, I've never seen a group that apologize so much for having to get paid for the work they do, especially considering the amount of education that a lot of them have. And we carry this into that negotiation with us. It's not just with clients. Um, We go in and we're like looking at, you know, at the practice manager or the the practice owner sitting across the table. And we're like, oh, my God, they're going to think like I'm a money grubbing loser. And yet that's what we hate feeling like people think about us and and like we have to eat and be comfortable we have the right to be comfortable and do this work and i'm just wondering like now that so many practices are being uh, are becoming corporate owned if the negotiation the feelings around negotiation change because i found i now would find it much easier to negotiate with a big corporation than I would with like a small town practice owner who's, you know, trying to put his kids through college. And I don't know if that's right or not, but I feel like they expect you to come to the table and negotiate. Doesn't mean they're going to treat you well if you do it. That's, that's individual. But like, I feel like it's more expected in a corporate situation. Would you agree with that? I think I think I would. I think it's a very different tone when you work. Like having consulted for different um, groups, I there's an extremely different tone when mm-hmm. you work with a big corporate group versus you know like a one-off independent startup kind of practice. Um, it's a very different kind of conversation, and you're working with people that are business people. They aren't veterinarians. Like I think this idea that like oh I don't feel comfortable negotiating with them because it's like they feel very James Harriety. It's mm-hmm. like this idea that it you know these these practices veterinarians are not the best business people. So, and and I think there is such a personal connection to it that like to try to negotiate with them, it becomes this like personal attack, which is like, we can unpack a whole, we bring in a therapist and unpack that one. (laughs) But I definitely think that uh, when you go to negotiate with a big corporation, one, I think you should get, you know, Katie's dad in his red pen looking at that contract and you should (laughs) go back with it completely marked up. Um, But also I think there is going to be less of that personal feelings connection to it, um, which I, I personally feel it's way easier to negotiate with that person if they're yeah representing a big corporation. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because I, I agree with you, Danielle, like that this business side, like that, that's how it is in, in many other industries, right? That it isn't as there's it's, it's more dispassionate, but we still bring ourselves and our expectations that there's this emotional part. And so you're showing up with somebody who's expecting you to bargain hard and ask for what you want. We don't. Um, so, so then I think that's when you end up with these people who, who find themselves in these situations where like, I didn't realize I could ask for different things. I, I didn't realize what I was signing myself up for with, with these restrictions or, or all these yeah. things. And so if there's any sort of thing that would be helpful, I think for a profession moving forward is to, to understand what that means to, to read a contract and, and to be critical and, and to know what you want and know what you're asking for. So it's not just salary, right? It's all the other things around it. It's, it's the culture. Um, you know, I hear that a lot from independent practice owners where I can't compete with the money that's out there and these big practices. And that's very likely that, that you can't, but what else can you compete with? Because there's probably a whole lot that you're bringing that you don't even realize you're leaving on the table because you're not, you're not sharing and communicating with people the value of that. 150%. Like that's like literally the bread and butter of my work day to day, right. Is about 
helping people kind of unpack what those special things are. And I think that that's an important piece of all of this conversation about negotiation in general too, is to remember like you, it's not just going to be financial. There's other things that you can ask for and really demand in your, (laughs) um, in your interview process and make sure that something is going to be a good fit for you. Right. And I think kind of circling back to some of the points in terms of, um, you know, what we were talking about, like, is this a workplace that's going to like accommodate the fact that I have to go pick my kid up from daycare or or whatever, you know what I mean? Things like that, I think become really, really important to have those kinds of conversations up front. So like the negotiation isn't always just like a financial contract, like big to do. I think it is so much of like, I think it's so important to show up as your full self and to be honest about what you need and to have a real conversation with whoever you're trying to work for. Um, it's why I love personal branding so much because it's like you can share exactly who you are so people know exactly who they're getting when you go to show up and what you're going to expect of them. Um, and I think that that is such a critical step to also opening some people's eyes to the unique needs that you have, whether it is something, you know, like, you know, childcare needs or something if you have, you know, like a disability that needs to be accommodated, et cetera. Like, I think bringing those things up is so critical. Yeah. 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 The last thing you want in life, right, is to sign up for something um, (laughs) that you don't really want to show up with. Uh, That's going to be a disappointment for everyone. Yeah, fifty <laughs> percent. That that's kind of a disconnect too with the with the corporate practice because a lot of times the person you're negotiating with or the person you're at the table with when you're signing your contract isn't the person you're going to be working with every day, um, <laughs> you know. And I didn't realize that when sure. I was a year out of school and sure. signing on to work at a corporate practice was that you know we could have a rapport at that signing table and that would not in any way reflect my day-to-day experience. And that's not to say that that's always bad. It's just that you have to be prepared for that and make sure that if you're interviewing for a practice where you're not negotiating with the person you're going to be working directly with, that you spend a lot of time in that practice and get an idea. Because corporate or no, every practice is really different and every dynamic is really different. And on both sides of that table, knowing what you can ask for. So like maybe you're a practice that can't offer hundred thousand dollar signing bonus, but you can offer a flexible schedule or a work from home day with telehealth service or something like that. Exactly. That's super cool. And a lot of people would give up a lot of income a lot of money. in order to mm-hmm. be able to do that. Yeah. To have that flexibility. Um, no, yeah. 100%. And so you could have that in your back pocket when you're going into the room to discuss with the possible associate or technician, but also the person interviewing can come in with that idea that maybe like as a negotiating um tech you know tactic they could say like well i know you know there's this is this is the compensation but maybe we could talk about a little bit of scheduling flexibility and start there um that's important it could be on both sides definitely my most uh successful experiences and stories I hear from others are when people sort of view this negotiation not as a win-lose, right? Because mm-hmm. you always hear that um, sort of the old school business approach. Somebody's won and somebody's lost. But when you look at it as a give and take where you're both happy with the outcome, like that is possible. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a very different intent uh, and a, a very different sort of outcome that you're looking for. Like the first thing of which being, first and foremost, there is there is a possibility 
that the person who shows up is not the right person for this job. And that that happens a lot and that's okay too. Um, mm-hmm. Again, when you look at it as like a win-lose thing, there is no greater win than not being offered a job that would have been horrible for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think we all been know. There. <laughs> yeah, taking the job is like the worst possible outcome for you. Yeah, I think I think sometimes, right? Like, and I know the the book Feminist Fight Club kind of like inspired us having this this chat, right? And I love the concept in there of like um, owning your skill set, and you're not like you're not lucky for just you know having opportunities. You've worked and you've put something in there that has gotten you to that place. Of course, there could always be an element of like privilege of that luck, but like you're you're not lucky. You've put work in, right? And I think that in veterinary medicine, sometimes it's like almost people are like too thirsty. It's like, you don't have to say yes to a job just because they like offered you this job. Like, you know, like go, you know, you could, you could swipe left and move on, look at some other options. Like it's okay. And I think that that is a big piece of this too, because it should feel like a win-win in the end, right? Like if you're having to negotiate so hard and like that hundred thousand dollar, you know, side on bonus might sound good, but might come with a lot of like, you know, golden handcuffs that you do not want. So like, I think you really want to come at it from that collaborative approach. And I think that is what um, women do so well is the more collaborative approach um, when it comes to kind of how they approach business interactions, which I love kind of seeing more women get into leadership because then you do see things like Jessica coming to you and being like, Katie, I have this job. This is my budget. And it is such a more collaborative discussion. Um, And that's something that I hope we can like foster and see more of in our space. Yeah, Jessica definitely gets practice picking her battles as chief medical (laughs) officer, too. Like, (laughs) we have a very collaborative team and you can't fix everything all at once on one day. And I think I think that is um, something that women also tend to do well, <laughs> at least in my experience, better than a lot of men who just kind of are like, no, this is what I want and I want it now. And again, generalization, but like <laughs> it is it is very easy, I think, when you're technically, I'm using quotes, the most powerful person in the room to say like, nope, this is the way we're going to do it. And I think... A lot of women. That's maybe certainly the easy to approach to things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it rarely actually gets you. Yeah, the long-term outcomes that you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Danielle, I'm glad you mentioned. So, Feminist Fight Club. Um, this is a fantastic book. Um, and actually, so the author is Jessica Bennett, and I'll put the link in the show notes if you're listening and not watching. I'm holding it up. It's like even a fun book. You know, it's got like this like graffiti cover. But I actually think of you when I think of this book, because I'm pretty sure that I was in the room when you and Cindy Courtney, who's also been on this podcast, were talking about it. And she was like, you have to read this book. And I went out and read it because I always read things that Cindy Courtney tells me to read. And um, she's amazing. You must read a lot. She (laughs) She recommends a lot of books. She she has a book for every situation. That's why I have a to be read pile. It's like three shelves big, but that's all right. Um, But this book is you know, I, I haven't read it cover to cover in a long time. I'm sure there's some stuff in it that might be a little bit dated. It's been out a little bit now, but it's very, very good at sort of getting to the heart of the things that women do because we're taught that way um, and how we can try to work through them without sort of denying who we are and also what men can do in situations where they see this behavior happening, such as um, when women are getting mansplained to, or um, when women are afraid to speak up for themselves and then don't get credit for ideas that are theirs. Um, There's no reason why we can't help each other out 
um, no matter how, what gender we identify as, to to say like, hey, that was actually, you know, Beth's idea, or hey, you know, actually Molly was the one who originally thought about that, and you know, be alert for those situations for each other because as women, it's important that we help each other out. I think I think Danielle, you were the one who recommended that book to me, um, and there there's so many great little nuggets in that. Um, and, and to your point, Katie, just about sort of how you walk into the world and, and what you bring to the table. I was talking to a friend of mine who comes from the tech space. Uh, she's a woman. And again, like sort of like the inverse of mm-hmm. the veterinary space, uh, 90% men. And she was a manager there and she had a lot of um, things that, that she'd put up with. And she saw, you know, at, at the levels of leadership, um, women didn't support each other. Like they're more critical of one another. And again, it, it wasn't it wasn't intentional. It's just the subliminal, um, I think, expectation over time. Like there, there are so few spaces for women. There's only a space for me. Yeah. And if you, if I see you trying to come up, like clearly it's to knock me off. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I got to fight for this as hard as I can. And the reality is the opposite, right? And so, yeah, it's hard to overcome that programming to say, I, I'm going to reach down and lift this person up, even though it feels like this is a threat to me that I'm giving something up. Um, you can't help feeling that way. You know, like you feel what mm-hmm. you feel, but you can control how you react to it and say, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and let the world prove me wrong. And I have, it, it has brought me nothing but blessings over and over again to do that and to any human being, right? Like help the people around you. But I I think in particular, um, when you're looking to lift other women, it it can feel threatening. I don't know how many conversations I've had with women in the vet space over 10 years where there was sort of this undercurrent, like 10 years ago, I like, I wouldn't have liked you. Um, (laughs) Right. It's absolutely a thing. And it's like, I'm trying to find, I have notes from that book because that's how I kind of remember, you know, like whatever the heck I read. And uh, it's funny, I was looking through my notes and I found another book that's super on topic, which is called The Myth of the Nice Girl is Mm. another book that really kind of gets into why women who are in leadership roles should actually own the idea of being nice. Um, But I really like with that with with the kind of to piggyback on what Jessica was saying there i think that yes women can be very collaborative in a good culture situation but also yes women can be extremely like scarcity scarcity mindset and cutthroat when they feel like somebody is coming after them for opportunities and i think it's so important it's something i know i've personally struggled right with as a consultant, like there's other consultants that might do something vaguely similar to what I do. And, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to help her. You know what I mean? And you get like that little pang of like jealousy or something like that. And I think over time, I've really learned to be more supportive of everybody around me because everybody really does have their own like kind of little niche that they serve. And you can really build out like a good little network of people instead of like operating in that like scarcity mindset kind of place. Um, I find that especially again, like I hate to generalize, but I'm just going to be honest here in terms of my experience, it's boomer women, um, that have probably had to really fight to get to where they are, um, in a very male dominated world at the time that they were coming up professionally. I think because it was like, they were probably, you know, even a white woman was probably the diversity hire in like 1985. So like, 
she has fought to be there and she's not always going to be the most supportive. Um, and I think kind of coming into things with the awareness of what somebody's experience again might have been and why they're like that and having a level of empathy for it, but also being aware that that just because they're modeling that behavior, you shouldn't, that that's not how you, you need to act to succeed. You can be extremely supportive of other people and still be extremely successful. Yeah. And you are both evidence of that um, because you are definitely two people who make a, a concerted effort to reach out, you know, and help lift other people up who are coming up in the industry. And um, I really like, actually, you've both done that for me <laughs> because Danielle was my first Twitter friend on vet on vet med Twitter. <laughs> I have since ditched Twitter because Twitter is terrifying. But <laughs> In 2015, I like screamed into the void and Danielle answered. <laughs> and it was about right. was, as, as she does. Yes. Right. <laughs> that was how I first learned that there was like this whole other world of people in vet med who are like not just going to work and seeing the patients and going home and like doing that every day until they die. And um, that you, you were my first window into that world and you were so willing to chat and like you, you know, just you both have put so much content out into the world that says who you are and that allows other people to come up and say, like, maybe I could do something like this too. And um, it's done nothing but strengthen the industry as far as I can see. So, um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I totally feel that too now in the position I'm in where I'm like, oh gosh, you know, it took I'm turning 45 this year and I just got here and I really love being here. And like, I don't want to not be here. And at the same time, like one of the best things about this job is they get to meet so many amazing people. And it is extremely satisfying to make those connections and see people succeed. It's so much more satisfying than like sitting up here and being like, I'm finally doing what I want to do. Screw all of you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that would get 100%. old really fast. <laughs> well, I want to... The first things that jumped out at me about Feminist Fight Club, and I think I immediately reached out before I got to chapter two to Danielle, like, oh, my God, this really resonates, is um, it, it is very hard to, like, toot your own horn. And I, mm -hmm. I hear that all the time. Like, why don't you talk yourself up more? And it, it, it can't. They can't. Like, I will never be that person. And I, I don't think that's, like, woman. That's just me. But it's really easy for me to talk up other people. It's not that I don't have the ability. I just don't like to use it on myself. But... Um, I like doing that for other women in particular, because there are so many other women. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I just sort of make it part of my habit, you know, as, as much as possible to acknowledge and to lift and, and to just offhandedly mention to someone else, Oh, have you met this person? She's amazing at X, Y, Z. Um, how many times people have come back to me? I do it for, for men too. Um, yeah. But they've come back and said, you know, thank you so much. This opened this door, this opened that opportunity. I, it always shocks me, like, really? I did not think that that would have any impact. I just wanted to do it. But you're planting these little seeds. And the further you get along in life, you just have no idea what you're leaving in your wake. And to me, this was an offhanded thing. It cost me nothing. It took me two seconds to say something to build someone up. But it can have this snowball effect. That's something everybody, every single person, man, woman, whatever you identify with, whatever industry you work in, no matter how old or young you are, just start doing that. Yeah. It's yeah. like, that's the easiest thing. And it grows from there. I can absolutely co-sign that. Like, I think that it is something that is so 
incredible like I said again like if you if you're scared about like nominating anybody else for other opportunities and things like that because you're worried that like it means you're not going to get something I really can assure you that if you pass opportunities along to other people um it will come back like in good karma points for sure <laughs> yeah that's another good book uh give and take by Adam Grant that was a good oh, book yeah. mm-hmm um, we should just have book club on the podcast. Oh, I could totally do that. I know. <laughs> Hold me accountable. I have a really big pile of books I need to read too. I yeah, uh, it gets order. it just gets exponentially bigger. Like I think they I think they clone at night. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. Or, like, or Cindy these? Courtney comes in and clones my books. Like <laughs> she's just a little she's fairy listening. That comes in. <laughs> I know. You're like, oh, I gotta I gotta add this to Katie's pile. And suddenly <laughs> there's more, but I wouldn't even notice because there's so many. Um, yeah, so this book, you know, Feminist Fight Club talks about a lot of other things. Um, negotiation was a big one I wanted to talk about today because I do feel like that is something that we could still use so much help with. And in fact, more and more, I think we we need we owe it to our, you know, people are still in school, people just entering the field um, to be transparent with how much is a reasonable amount to get paid for that job. And so that they go in prepared and don't find themselves in a situation where they're like frantically emailing people to see if they can get a response before they have to come back with another number. And, you know, just being as open as we can about what we did and what we've seen and about any help we can give. But I just, I hope that this is something that educators, you know, are working into their curriculum. I don't know if it is. Um, We we had a, a contracts unit, you know, it was like, probably a couple weeks long. And that was, that was pretty much it, you know, and everybody was getting paid pro sal then. And, um, right. we learned about pro sal and, and that was it. And then it was like, well, I guess that's a good salary. I mean, <laughs> I get health insurance. Kind of a short, fine. yeah. Yeah. I really, I don't, I don't think what you get. I mean, the veterinary students I talk to, I still don't feel like are completely empowered and aware of what they should be asking for. And I think I see a lot of uh, like managers really struggle on like what the heck they should be paid. Mm. Um, there's a Facebook group yeah. called v- VPMU that like shares a lot of good feedback um, with uh, it's called Veterinary Practice Managers Unite is what that stands for. And like they share like a lot of open conversations about what you know, they're being paid and, and what that looks like. Cause I think they kind of get forgotten sometimes. Right. Cause it's like, everybody's yeah. out here advocating for, you know, like I advocate for support staff all the time, but as a former practice manager, a lot of practice managers are out there not getting paid very much either. Um, and they are juggling a lot. So yeah. I think that, um, to, to say the least. So I think that again, just like the transparency and being willing to share like, Hey, this is what I made. It's like, I literally, for all my consulting stuff, like I put my prices out like on my Instagram story for things because it's like, yeah. I just want people to know what I'm making, what I'm charging so that we have a valuable conversation at the end of the day. Yeah. That also, um, it's helpful when we see people like you do that because it may not be directly translated into what an associate vet should be getting paid for instance. Yeah. But like, I know when I, I've only known being a vet. I was an intern at a museum, you know, before I went to vet school. So like, we don't even talk about money as an intern. But, you know, when I got out of full-time practice and I was getting into these, you know, like I had I worked at Clinician's Brief and when I went to work for them, I was like, I have no idea how much I'm going to get paid. Like, I don't know what I should ask for. I don't know if I should negotiate. Like, forget whether I should negotiate. I don't even know where the starting ballpark is. Like, 
the idea of how much other people get paid for jobs that can't be measured on production, as I always was, is like completely foreign to me. And I just think that's not probably right. Like we should, as professionals in this industry, know what other people get paid in other industries, because we need to know what, I mean, maybe we don't even really know what a living wage is, you know? Right. 150%. Like I think that, especially when I think of like, that's why I think of managers, right? Because I Mm -hmm. think of managers that are out there and they're paying, being paid like $20 an hour to run a $3 million business. And they then find out like what I'm earning as a consultant. And they're like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, that's why I share it because I'm like, Hey, maybe if they're never going to pay you anymore, you've got a skill set and you could maybe figure out a way to be getting paid. Um, so I think that's why it's so, so important. I think vet med can be so insular, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like that, because I think, especially if you're talking about veterinarians they've worked so hard and so laser focused on being a veterinarian and yeah we have no idea school that they have no concept of like what is life it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like i moved I to colorado i look around i see these house this housing prices and i'm like what does everyone do for a living <laughs> i can't buy that house like not this. i'm a doctor <laughs> It's super true, right? And I think that's 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 why I'm like all here for it in terms of the transparency. Just like if anybody listening is like thinking about getting into consulting or speaking or anything like that, always feel comfortable like messaging me. I will tell you what you should be charging. <laughs> Love that. Sometimes you just need a friend who's going to be like, you know, you are worth this much. Oh, a hundred percent. And I'm way better at it for other people than myself. Like I have to like, (laughs) I still, yeah, a hundred percent. Like I still have to reach out to, you know, my friends or even like my, my husband is, um, a consultant as well. So I'll be like, does this sound okay? You know what I mean? Like, so as confident as I sound, like talking about it here, like it, it is tricky to, to nail. Um, so it's, it's fine to ask other people, no matter what stage of your career you're at. Okay, so uh, one question for both of you um, to leave us with. I'll give you a choice because our time is is money. I will say, do you want to tell us an embarrassing vet med story because doesn't everybody have one? Or do you want to tell us what's one thing that you hope everybody listening who can relate to this stuff stops doing now after hearing this podcast? (laughs) Ooh, I want to do the stop doing one because I'm bossy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> excellent <laughs> wait one thing we wish we would stop doing or we want other people to stop doing that you hope other people listening would stop doing after hearing this conversation i hope that everyone would stop assuming the worst of of other people and be okay just kind of reaching out and asking for advice or help love that they might say no and that's mm-hmm. okay but most people say yes yeah. <laughs> love it I love that I got all excited about my bossy response and then I'm like ooh what is it gonna be um, <laughs> I would say I mean you know like Danielle like you br- I may be your anger translator but you're my assertiveness translator like it's yes. a great we've had a great uh, friendship over the years for that like reason it. so exactly. don't stop being bossy I think bossy is like a good word too like I feel like it gets a negative connotation but like and people trying to rebrand it but I'm like I like bossy it sounds more fun like it's like <laughs> I mean that's like, how stuff gets done right exactly exactly <laughs> and so like on that note I think if I was going to kind of tell one you know one thing that you should stop doing after listening to this I think it is um, it is really this this assuming that you 
can't do more in your career kind of like to both you are both such good examples of of this and not to say that being a veterinarian isn't like an extremely fulfilling career um but if you're listening to this and you're a practice manager or a veterinarian or support staff role whatever it is just know you can do whatever the heck you want with that experience um it doesn't need to be limited to like the four walls of an exam room Absolutely. What that's like my one of my soapboxes. Don't devalue <laughs> that would be mine is yeah. I wish people would not devalue their knowledge that they've built yes. up over years and years of like blood, sweat and tears in the vet clinic. It is worth just as much outside of the vet clinic if you find a situation where people are looking for that experience and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um so don't devalue yourself because you have a lot to offer that people outside the industry just cannot they can't make it up. You yep. can't fake that stuff. <laughs> 150% we're seeing it with a lot of these like business-minded people out there. They, they need help from the actual veterinary industry to run these veterinary businesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both. This has been so fun. Um, we could have talked about so many things like apologizing, why we don't apply for jobs, um, feedback, uh, women as managers. Like, There's so many good topics in this book. So um, if you're interested in this subject um, or you feel like you need a little bit of, nudge, of a nudge yourself, then like go to um, Feminist Fight Club. Check it out and we'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you both so much for your time. Love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.